On April 28, 1974, Bill Purvis was dying from a stab wound and crying out to God in desperation for a miracle that would save his soul and save his life. This week, Bill shares his powerful story about how God saved him from his past and is using him mightily in ministry today. It's all in episode 81 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 81 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host. And this week we're talking with Bill Purvis. Bill has a powerful testimony of how God saved him, especially right after he received a stab wound that could have ended his life. Not only did God heal him from that injury, but also saved his soul. And he has the powerful story of transformation that resulted uh, from the undeniable love of God. It's given him an urgency to tell others about Jesus. Uh, Later in his life, he would receive a call to ministry, uh, go to seminary, and begin to pastor uh, Cascade Hills Church in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, Started with 32 people in 1983 and has grown to over 10,000 people in 2015. And now... Here's our conversation with Bill Purvis. Well, Bill, it is such a privilege to have you as our guest on the Churchlers Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it, Andrew. You and your audience as well. I hear so many good things, and the impact you're making is something that I'm honored to be a part of today. Well, Bill, I want I really want our audience to hear about your amazing journey. The, the story that you tell in your, in your book uh, is so gripping. Can you share with us kind of the way that God— led you to faith and some of the amazing circumstances that he used. Absolutely. In fact, uh, Zondervan came out with a book this year on it, Make a Break for It, is the title of it. And um, and they wanted me to tell the story, and so I did that, and I'll share with you kind of a, a little bit of a synopsis of it. I was raised uh, in a home where it was really dysfunctional. I didn't know it was dysfunctional at the time. To me, it was my normal. I had a father that had this kind of alpha male syndrome, that is, that he didn't mind girls in the family, but he was threatened by a boy. And so I grew up having this absent father, though still in the home. And uh, as a result of that, I, you know, I just kind of went out and tried to fill the emptiness of my life with a lot of things, tried it with athletics and academics. And, and no matter what I did, I never could seem to quite get his blessing. And by the time I was 14, then I, then I got on another track, and, and I actually was introduced to alcohol and, and uh, marijuana at, at 15 and, and uh and even at 15 years of age by that time, and I came from a very high-end, middle-class home, so on the outside everything looked well, but at 15 years of age, I, I wound up having sex with a married woman, and I was just empty on the inside, searching and couldn't find it. I did know the gospel. Somebody had told me the gospel one time. Some friends and I were hanging around, and they began to share how that Jesus died for me and, and that he could save my soul. and and that, uh, that he was the son of God, rose on the third day, his, his blood atoned for my sin. So I, I understood that, and I th- even thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. But the one thing they left out, they, they left out the fact that I could invite him into my heart. They never told me that. So it's like a fact, that that's great, but, man, I've already been rejected by an earthly father, so certainly as bad as I was, as empty as I was, a heavenly father wouldn't receive me. And they just left that part out. And um by the time I was 17, one night I was riding around with a friend and we drove down a street and saw a prostitute on the corner. And, and I turned to my friend and said, have you ever been with a prostitute before? And he said, no. And I said, let's try this. And he grabbed my arm and said, no, Bill, don't do it. And I said, oh, come on. And, and the reason I was doing it is just filling up a, a void in my life. And I pulled up, began to negotiate with her and the guy that was standing there with her. And we went over to a house, and 
walked into this house, locked the door. And, and, uh, of all things, the guy had got up and walked around through the front of the house and, uh, he told my friend out in the car, he said, I'm going to get a cigarette. And, uh, and he walked around through the front of the house and came by and stopped by the kitchen and picked up a butcher knife. And we stood in that house and we both got fully undressed. And then she nodded, she pointed a little bed there and so I sat down on the bed. And about the time she turned off the light, when she turned off the light, I heard a creaking sound in the room and I, I, I knew something was going on. It had been a setup. I jumped up, then she turned the light back on and the guy was standing there in front of me with a butcher knife, the blade nine and a half inches long. They'd made this kind of pack that I'll turn the light off. That'll be the signal that he's in position. I'll turn the light on. You step in. And, and, and at that moment, he's standing in front of me. He says these words to me. He says, um, he says, now you're going to die. And before I knew it, he swung that knife. It stabbed me the first time in the chest. Went an eighth of an inch below my heart. Took out my sack, the pericardium. He swung the second time. It went into my throat. It took out my jugular vein. Cut my jugular vein completely in half. As far as I know, I'm one of the few people in the world to have lived with that kind of wound. Some people have lived up to 20 minutes with it. Um, you usually would bleed out at about six. And before I knew it, I, now I'm fighting with him. I knock him down. I step over him. And he stabs me the third time in the liver. I, I hit the door, but I'd locked the door coming in. I mean, everything just went from zero to 60 so fast. I ran out the door, and I start running in the street, and I grab a light pole. I fall out in the parking lot, and I'm choking on my own blood, and I hold on this pole. And the most ironic thing, Andrew, is this, is that two weeks before that incident, a young guy had gone to a church service, and somebody said, you need to go tell somebody that you know is without God, that God loves them and that they need him. And this boy, who I didn't even know well, came to my door, had knocked on my door and had said these words, Bill, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. And those words were words that for two weeks I couldn't get out of my head. It's kind of like a song on the radio. You know, you just keep keep hearing it over and over. And that night as I was holding onto that light pole, I heard those words, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. My friend backed the car up as I was praying. I just started praying because I didn't have any other alternative. I knew I was dying. I knew I was going to hell. I cried out to God and said, God, come into my life. Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. And I, I knew I would die. I didn't have any hope of living, but I wanted to be saved, and I needed God desperately, and I cried out to him. My friend backed the car up. I jumped in, and we took off to the hospital, which was less than a block away. Within six minutes of the moment I was stabbed, I was now under a doctor's care. A cardiovascular surgeon happened to be there that night. They grabbed me, threw me on the table. First thing he said was, get the district attorney up here. This young man's been stabbed to death. He's not dead yet, but he'll be dead before he gets here. His jugular vein is completely severed. And the place looked like somebody just poured red paint everywhere. I was bleeding so bad. But within a matter of seconds, these doctors now were all over me. There was another one that was a trauma surgeon from Vietnam, and he was doing surgery. So I wound up with three surgeries at one moment. I woke up like uh, 11 hours later. And I was in the hospital room with doctors around me, nurses, police outside the door. And I remembered what I had prayed that night before. I thought, wow, this is crazy. I thought it was a bad dream. And I remembered that night that I'd prayed and asked Christ in my life. And I'll tell you, of all the things that was most frightening to me, it wasn't even the stabbing. The thing that most frightened me that kind of just took my breath away was the fact that I had called out to God. And, and I felt unworthy, undeserving. I felt that, uh, that I'm grateful to God you, you saved me, you spared my life but you don't know what you got. I'm not worthy of anything. I, I'll never pray again because I don't, I don't deserve anything that you would ever ask. And I almost thought I was bothering God. 
but I had this unusual peace that came over me that was almost as if God was saying, you're going to take a different life, a different path. And uh, that was 36 years ago. And amazing thing is this, is that, that God saved me, changed me. I had this incredible hunger for the Bible. I couldn't get enough of it. It's a Gideon Bible there in the nightstand by the bed. I stayed in the hospital for 30 days. I'd, I'd read that, that Bible. I couldn't get enough. Now, I didn't know one thing about the Bible. Some people do, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know who came first, Abraham, Adam, Jesus, whatever. Uh, I remember a nurse would take off 30 minutes early before work and come in and try to read me the scripture. And she'd say something like, Jesus walked on the water. And I'd say, wait a minute, hold on. You know, I, I don't understand that. How did he walk on the water? And she'd say, he saved you, didn't he? And I'd say, go ahead, read on. And, and her word, by reading the scripture, began to put faith in my heart. I remember getting promises out of the Bible. You know, some people call it Job, you know, Job. I remember one time saying, hey, I read this book of Spasm. This is the coolest book. And she said, Spasms? I said, yeah. Turns out I was talking about Psalms. I just didn't know anything. I was green. I was unchurched. But I found the mercy of God, and God found me that night. And later, he would call me to ministry. I'd go into seminary and and um, and then learn the scripture. And, uh, and yet God's hand's always been on my life. He's blessed me with three wonderful grown adult children now, great marriage, a church that has grown so well. In fact, we baptize somebody every single day of the year in 2015, may do the same in 16. Conversions on a regular basis. Our growth is all by conversion. And it's just been amazing what God has done in my life and through the lives of other people. When I found out what that boy said was true, everything you're looking for can be found in Jesus. So I was one of those radical road to Damascus salvations. But what he gave me that day, I never got over it. So that's my story. And they came along, like I say, and wrote a book about it called Make a Break for It. And uh, what I've done with the book is two things. One is to encourage other people as they read it to build their faith that God can use you if you'll put all that you have in his hand. And two is to put it in the hands of lost people. The biggest thing I've found is people that have unchurched friends, if they'll put that book in their hand, they begin to read it. And then they can open a conversation so they can share the gospel. We've had a lot of people tell us that that's been the best tool to put in the hands of somebody that didn't know God, that they cared about and loved about, and it opened the door for the conversation to start. So that in a nutshell is kind of where I am and what's what's going on. You can find the book at Amazon or any of the bookstores, uh, but um, but that's where I am, Andrew, and, and I'm as in love with Christ today as I was the day that uh, a week after I found him and he found me. Wow. Such a powerful story, and it's, it's so great to hear you tell it. What are the things, as, as God did call you into ministry, mm-hmm. are there things about having that in your, like going through that experience that have uniquely prepared you for the ministry that, that God had for you? Yeah, several things. One is, obviously, my, my salvation was something that was interesting. Because my, my conversion was between me and, and Jesus, I don't belong to like a denomination or anybody else. I, I, never, I, I know that I'm owned by God. So I, I really have a, a real sense of strong security in my faith in him. And uh, I, I never had to play the game or play the politics or any of that stuff. Uh, and that kept, me, that kept me grounded, I think. The other was I, I learned, I had an incredible hunger for God. So I learned to pray. And I used to would go in, when I'd read Matthew, and he'd say, go into the prayer closet and shut the door. I literally did that. I, nobody taught me different. So as a new believer, I would go in the prayer closet and I would shut the door and I would pray for hours just for God to shape my heart and to fill my spirit and to give me insight. And so I developed a prayer life at an early age that I believe that almost everything that I see today 
is a result of having spent time with God. And then I was fortunate. God began to put into my life other great mentors, people that came into my life that helped me at every level, from the early days, people that would just teach me how to read the Bible, how to study, how to share my faith. Uh, then I had bigger mentors. John Maxwell actually became a personal mentor about 15 years ago and, and, uh, and helped me in the areas of leadership and became a dear friend during that time. I actually wrote a forward in my book. And, and so I've had great mentors, and I've found that every, every time, as long as I sought God, God brought the right people at the right time and the right season. And so I challenge people to develop those things. One is a real security in your identity that you belong to God. And the other is develop a good prayer life so that you can hear God's voice. And then the other is to, to let God bring into your life the mentors that you go to school on their shop. You learn from their experience. That's great. I know that you you write a lot about the mentorship in your book, about the value of mentors in both of our personal and spiritual growth. Yeah. Um, there are so many people listening to this right now that are in some type of mentoring relationship or, or have a hunger for mentorship to grow in their church. What are the right. things that you've seen that, that make for those great mentorship relationships? Yeah. And I, and I think one thing is, too, you can learn from everyone. You know, the person that's unteachable doesn't learn from anybody, but you can learn from everyone. The secret in mentoring is, is I don't think there's any one mentor. And I think sometimes we, we almost limit ourselves when we think there's one person that's going to teach me something. Everybody has something to teach you. But if there's a particular area you want to grow in, if I want to grow in my marriage, I want to go to somebody who's learned how to develop a great marriage. If I want to raise children right, I go to somebody who's done that. If I want to learn you know, technology, I go to somebody with that. If I want to learn how to pray, I go to somebody with that. So I think the secret is going to be to decide, in what area do I need mentoring? In what area do I need somebody that can get help me to get a little further? And um, and then when we can clarify that, then we pick out those people. And I found most people, especially mature people, they want to help. They they're willing to. And if you can bring them good questions, you know you want to you want to have some good questions. And if you have some time with someone, say here's several questions. If you could help me with, and then apply what you learn. I found when people approach me for mentoring, if they will apply what I've last taught them, I don't mind giving them more time down the road. And so that's the issue of mentoring. It's finding them. Um, they will help you with character. They'll help you with experience. They'll help you with insight. They'll help you to kind of see around the corners a little bit. I used to have one of the greatest old mentors. I didn't know when I first began the church that uh, he was an older pastor. And he would sit down and say, now, Brother Bill, when I was a young pastor, here's a mistake I made. And it was always the mistake he would tell me about was the mistake I made the day before. And I'd say, are you talking about me? Oh, no, no, I'm not talking about you. This is what I would do. But it was his gentle way of trying to help to guide me to stay on track. And so uh, there's a real value, though, in learning from everyone and letting other people teach you, particularly if they're if they're really good in one area. Get all you can from them while you can. I think that's so good. And to know exactly what you're looking for in each mentor yeah. relationship I know in the book, you, you talk about envisioning the future. And yeah. I, I think that your story resonates with people that look to the past and there's regret and there's, you know, there's past struggles. As, yeah. as the gospel transformed you, how did you process some things in the past that maybe you weren't mm -hmm. proud of? Yeah, I, I had to learn to, that, I didn't, that even my past didn't surprise God, that God knew it. God shapes that uh, vessel the way he, he chooses. He allows us to make decisions, but even in our bad choices, he shapes those things and uses those. So sometimes we have a tendency to look at our past and feel that we can't be used, whereas it may be that past that God's going to use to help someone else. 
And so if you can value that as it, don't throw it away. You know, it's the, it's the issue of make something of the mess. And so I take that. And then as I envision the future, I say, God, what is, what is, what do I get most excited about? And what is it that really resonates with me? And if I can figure out the things that I get energy from, the things that excite me the most, the things that make me want to be a part of, then I can kind of direct where I, I want to be with the future. I believe that God puts a dream in all of our lives. I don't think we're all the same. Uh, you'll never work hard for somebody else's vision. You need your own. You need to know what God puts in your heart. And as he puts in your heart, the more you can figure out what it is you're looking for, somehow it kind of opens up so that you can see it. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, you buy a car and you think that's the only car on the road. And as soon as you drive off a lot, then you start noticing your car everywhere. But once you begin to clearly identify, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. You know, my vision was this. I wanted to have a great marriage. I wanted to equip people and I, in, the, in the gospel. And I wanted to reach people that didn't know God. And so when I was there, now, now I'm more alert to that when it comes along. I'm more aware of lost people around me. And so with your vision, it's the issue of it's not something real spooky. It's just listening to your, your heart, letting the word guide you, and then being willing to say, okay, how do I now apply this? And, and follow what, the, what light God gives you now. Sometimes we're bad about comparing and competing, and, and we want something somebody else has got. And we don't stop and pause and say, who am I? And how did God wire me? And what can I do? And what value do I bring? And, and you know, I, I think if you do what you can with what you have right where you are, God won't leave you where you are and he'll increase what you have. So focus on what you have right now at this moment. Mm. A little boy had a lunch basket, uh, you know, his little lunch. All he did was he volunteered and said, I'll give it. And the next thing you know, they're feeding 5,000 and they've got 12 baskets left over. All because one boy said, I, here's what I have, and he put it in God's hand. So put yourself in that place. Was there a time in your journey when that vision that you just mentioned began to be more clear to you? And kind of how did the Lord bring that vision to you? Yeah, for me, it's, uh, it's the issue of, like I said, what, what excites you, what makes you feel alive. I remember the first person I ever led to Christ, uh, I was sharing the faith with a young girl. Her name was Valerie. And I had tried to share my faith for six or seven months, and and no one ever acknowledged or received. And the night I did that, I couldn't tell you who got more excited, me or her. And that began to form for me something that I realized I am meant to be a soul winner. I'm meant to share the gospel. And, uh, and to this day, I had a gentleman yesterday, a doctor in our church. He's not really, had never been in our church, hard to heal. I've been fishing with him for 16 years. He doesn't know God. He was a big uh, evolutionist, scientist, and wonderful surgeon. And after praying for him for 16 years, yesterday he is in our church. He gives his life to Christ. And he and I are, are loving on each other and hugging each other and thanking God for that. And I, I was as excited about his salvation at that moment as I was about Valerie, you know, 35 years ago. And so for me, it's find out what excites you. And, and that's... That's the big, a lot of people, there's something in them. We think it's got to be real spooky or spiritual. It's got to be done even in the church. It doesn't. I know a guy that makes surfboards that does it for the glory of God. I know somebody that owns a restaurant does it for the glory of God. Whatever you have, you use your gift and do it for the glory of God and let God use that in your life to develop who you are. That's great. One of the chapters that struck me as I read your book is titled, The Way Up is Down. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. tell us about that chapter. 
Yeah, yeah. that's the, the idea of that is to understand that everything that you're really going to get from God, you get on your face before God. And we, we have a way sometimes in society, we've learned how the mentality that the world has of, you know, you elbow your way up, you say the right words, you politic, and you mingle. If you want God to really bless your life and really put you in the right place, get a quiet place where you can get along with God, where you can let God shape your destiny, shape your heart, and prepare you for the place he wants you. And God will open doors that nobody can shut and shut doors nobody can open. God has a way of letting you leapfrog past all the places that other people have have had to work to get through. And so I say the way that you want to really be before God is is going down, you know, spend time before God, uh, get to know God and his heart and his will. And when you do that, God will put you in the right places. And God God knows you, you don't get anywhere without God knowing where you're going to be beforehand. He's He's already got your life mapped out. And so the big thing he wants is fellowship and relationship with him. So I think a lot of people are chasing a big career. If you just chase a big God, he'll put you in the place that you'll have the greatest impact, be the most fulfilled, and you'll have the biggest fruit. So um, that, that's my suggestion is quit trying to go up, go down. That makes a big difference. Yeah, I love that. And I love, I love the, what I'm hearing you say is just keeping ourselves dependent on God. And yes. So many times we we think arriving is coming to a place of independence. Yeah. When when prayer keeps us dependent before Him. That's right. And you want to add value every day, and you can do it to the person that you buy groceries from, or get a sandwich from, or the the you know you can do it to a friend. Every day, just decide I want to add value. You know, it's it's not about us; it's about them. If you add enough value to enough people, there'll be a time that that you'll get back everything you've ever given. That's so great, Bill. The time has flown. Thank you so much for taking time to share with us. We'll link to where people can get your book in the show notes for this episode. But thank you so much for taking time to, to share with us today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my honor, and I wish you the very best. Well, thanks again to Bill Purvis for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and consider sending this episode to somebody you know who might benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to download the show notes for this episode and every episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In those show notes, we always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the show or guests you'd love to hear us talk to, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.